Well, here we are. It's the last Sunday of our Easter time, and we've just celebrated the ascension of our Lord on Thursday. It was a glorious day where the ascension reminds us that right now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for me and you. That when we fail, Jesus is our advocate. He's our lawyer. And he says, not guilty, Father, because of what I've done for you. Have you ever thought of it that way? Because exactly what is happening right now as we gather together, even at worshiping. And we want to wish happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in our lives. We're grateful for you and the examples you are to each and every one of us. And what a great text we have here today. Because to look at Sarah, because she is listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. She's one of those people who are great examples, but it doesn't seem so today, does it? As Sybil read it for us. I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles to Genesis 18. Because what we see in this text is the Lord appearing, our typical response to the Lord appearing in his words to us, and the Lord's correction and restoration. All right? Three things. The Lord appearing... Our typical response and our correction in restoration. First, we see the Lord appearing to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. Verse 1, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. This mysterious trio, God and two men, those are two angels, surprisingly approach Abraham, and they're standing there looking at him. This is the only time you're going to see in all the Old Testament God sitting and eating with one of God's people. You won't see it again until Jesus. It's an amazing passage. And Abraham's response was quick and from the heart. Despite being 100 years old, he runs towards them and bows low to the ground before them in warm respect. I hope you have had a chance to see the Jungle Book. If you're a Rudyard Kipling fan at all, you have to go see this movie. It warms my heart being a child of the 60s and 70s because I told you before my, my, my imaginary pet panther, Bagheera, while I ran consistently from my brother Bo, Shere Khan. Because there's only one thing you can do to fight a tiger, it's to run. And I was a good runner. And I was faster than Bo until he caught me. <laughs> but one of the great lines of that movie is as the elephants are coming, Bagheera tells Mowgli, Mogi, bow down, bow. And they bow down on the ground. Why are we bowing, Bagheera? Because the elephants have created the jungle. Well, of course they have. They're 10,000 pounds, and as they walk through the trees, they carve a new path before them. 
But Abraham, knowing that this is Adonai, that's the Hebrew word for Lord that he uses. Oh Lord, Adonai, verse 3, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. He sensed from their apparent that these three visitors must be honored. And he grants them that respect that is due a higher honor by using that phrase, Adonai. Abraham's hospitality and his assistance. Did you get that? Please stay. And he makes all this. He insists that they stay. Prevailed the trio and they consented to his offer of water for their feet, rest in the tree's shade, and something to eat. Some roasted lamb, some bread, something like pita bread, more than likely. And they sat down together for the first covenant meal. A meal where these otherworldly characters sat with the father of the multitude. This is the only place in all the Old Testament, I repeat, that you will see God sitting and eating a meal with a human being. This is spiritual intimacy. This is to dine with Yahweh at table is the ultimate honor anyone could ever have in the world. Dining with a dignitary cannot compare with this. So what if you get invited by the president or the king or the queen? You are invited to the table of the king. And God appears to Abraham. Now before you get any thoughts about trying to recreate this for yourself, take a step back, please. This is one instance in the scripture, and it's descriptive, not prescriptive, for us. There was only one burning bush. There's only one parting of the Jordan for Joshua. All the miracles of the scriptures. We tend to say, oh, we try to redo them, don't we? But they're there for our edification and our Knowledge, because God does appear to us today. And he has given us his Holy Spirit. Stay tuned for next week. When I understand spiritual truth, it's because the Holy Spirit is working in my life. And God speaks to us today, friends, through the power of his word. Anytime you, you learn something new, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Write it down. That's why I have sermon notes, by the way. Write it down. Through prayer, through times of prayer where God impresses something on me. Through my circumstances, through God's people confirming his will in my life. And what does he do when he does so? He reveals himself, his purposes, and his ways, which are countercultural in every culture around the globe. And so when you hear this, the culture goes, well, he speaks through the Bible. Well, you can't trust that. It's been changed it can't be trusted. It's been translated so many good times. People think that, right? I have heard that at Jake's, dear friends. It's a good question. It's a good thought. God appearing and God speaking to us through his word. And people ask that question. And I want to tell you there's three good answers to that, which are questions in and of themselves. Because that's a good question. The first question that we can derive from that, before you even go there, when people say that to you, you know, the Bible's been changed, translated. That's wonderful. Show me where. Because most of the time they can't. All right? 
If they can, great. But let's talk about it. Let's investigate together. But there's three key issues, three key questions that we can ask of any ancient manuscript. Matter of fact, all ancient manuscripts can be asked this question. First, there's the question of the distance between when it was written and when the events happened. If there's a lot of distance between the event and the time in the manuscript evidence, then people would have good reason to question whether or not this event actually occurred, right? Secondly, a second question to ask of the ancient manuscript is the distance between the text that was written and the earliest manuscripts that we possess. Because every ancient text is passed on and recopied, right? And they were copied on either papyrus, which were reeds that were glued together and rolled up, or parchment, which was animal skin, which was copied on and rolled up. And over time, it gets red a lot, and it ages, and it breaks off into fragments, some which we have today. And what's the difference between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when they were written in the earliest copy that I can read in Maudlin College Library in Oxford? Stay tuned. That's the second question. The third question is, what are the variations between the texts? Because it's great to have lots of manuscripts, but as you have more manuscripts, you probably have more variations, do you not? Well, my friends, when you compare the Bible with all other ancient texts, there is no comparison, quite frankly. Because what you have is the distance within the lifetime of the authors. The earliest text that we have is a fragment that's in the Maudlin College Library of the Gospel of Mark, a fragment, not the whole Gospel, that is dated in the mid-40s A.D., 12 to 15 years after Jesus resurrected. 16 years ago, we had Y2K. You remember that terror? Who remembers that time period? Thank you. I went out and bought a bunch of bottled water and granola and put it in the basement. And we all stayed up to watch the dropping of the ball, thinking the power was going to go out. We were kind of excited to see what would happen, if anything would happen. They predicted doom, right? Nothing happened, you know? We got up the next day, turned on the lights, the electricity's still on. I guess nothing happened. I can tell you what we were doing leading up to that point. If you had seen the resurrected Savior, you would remember with great detail what happened. And Mark wrote it down. And the earliest copies, the earliest documents we hold is 10 to 15 years from the event. And where there are variations... 99% of the variations are grammatical or spelling errors, akin to the American spelling of the word Savior, S-A-V-I-O-R, or the British word, S-A-V-I-O-U-R, meaning the same word, they're just culturally spelled differently. Does it change the meaning of the word at all? Not at all. So my friends with the Bible, we're not afraid of variations and we don't pretend that they don't exist, but what it shows is that there was no central agency controlling the translation of the texts. And that scholars, as they see variations, they dig, they discover, and we're not afraid to do that. And the vast majority of variations are minor, very minor. And the statistical evidence of the eyewitnesses beyond the authors of Jesus' life and his miracles is overwhelming. 
So my friends, the reality is when somebody says, well, you can't trust it, ask them, tell me what passage you don't trust. Because Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic. Which means if after an investigation, I make the conscious decision that he's a liar or a lunatic, I'd be a fool to follow him, wouldn't I not be? Or he's Lord. And if after an investigation of the text, I discover that he's Lord, I'd be a fool not to follow him. That's a great way to invite a friend, right? So what we have here is God appearing. He appears to Abraham in a special, unique way. And if we will live into the word, he will appear to us as well. As he sits down and has his covenantal meal. Well, what's the typical response to such an appearance? Well, happy Mother's Day. Let's look at Sarah. Verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent of the door behind him. You remember when your kids used to be talking on the phone and you listened to the door? Right? Talking to their boyfriend, their girlfriend. That's what Sarah's doing. Verse 11, listen to the sarcasm. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And she laughed to herself. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? See, when we look into the actual story in Genesis, we find Sarah with an overzealous and misguided faith in chapter 16, trying to give God a hand by fulfilling the promise to Abraham by giving her maidservant Hagar to Abraham. What happened with that? Well, it's not going to work out all that well for Hagar and for Ishmael. But here in Genesis 18, when God reminds her of his promise, she laughs to herself. She's almost 90 years old. That's like my mom having a baby. If I told my mom that today, she would laugh. What we find is that the real Sarah is not exactly the kind of person we would normally associate with great faith. And she gets a little bit of a rebuke here. Kind of a postscript. But here she is in chapter 11 of Hebrews, nominated as the one with great faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 says, By faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. You see, Sarah is struggling to believe. And the typical promise is, yeah, right. Lord, you can't do that in me. But the reality is, deep in her heart, she knows he can. And in a graced instant, Sarah understood that her unuttered thought was known to by the Lord. Whereas Hagar had learned that God seed saw her, see her, terrible English, saw her, Sarah now learned that God sees inside her. 
Sarah was doused with the reality that God is omniscient, all-knowing. Her future grandson, David, would put it this way in the psalm that we prayed this morning. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. Ouch. He knows the words before we even speak them. God knows every inner thought. No one, whether you're in the Mojave Desert, in the jungles of the Amazon, or on a ship in the middle Atlantic Ocean, can escape the all-knowing God. He perfectly knows all things. Every thought is known to God. He doesn't take wonder at anything. He's never been taken by surprise. He's never forgotten anything, and he's never mistaken. See, we can fool others, but not the unblinking eye of God. He knows our shoe size. He knows our dress size. And he knows our unspoken thoughts. And then we see the discipline and the restoration of the Lord. Verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you time this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. And then there's the postscript. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. For she was afraid. Abram said, no, you did laugh. See, the discipline of the Lord and the rebuke of the Lord is something that happens to all of God's people. Surely Sarah did not take this thought to the grand conclusion. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, of course nothing's too hard for the Lord. Praise God, I'm going to be pregnant. No, if God knows me like this, he can do anything. But she didn't think that. She laughed. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, no weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. Christian author Janie Yoder's husband, was, when he was little, she writes, When my husband was a child, his mother sometimes scolded and disciplined him for disobeying her. And he would respond to such scolding imploringly, saying, you must be nice to your little boy, as she was spanking him. His words touched her tender heart, but it didn't stop her discipline. Years later, as a missionary, Bill Yoder was grateful for his mother's training and tough love, for the discipline was the making of him. God also disciplines and trains his erring sons and daughters. He may do so directly, as we see Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 11, where he may allow life's hardships to melt us, to mold us, and make us more like Jesus. But just like the author says in Hebrews, he disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And yet God's chastening doesn't feel very loving, does it, at times? Just like our parents' disciplining of us. And sometimes we even think it might be ruining us. But God's discipline is the very thing that will save us from the, our, the ruin of our selfish and stubborn ways. To go our own way and not God's at times. 
Although we're unlikely to enjoy the discipline, we're told that it trains us for right and holy living. Rather than resisting God's correction, we should yield to him, confident that his goal is our spiritual growth. Whatever our circumstances, God knows the seriousness of our difficulties and is working out powerfully behind the scenes for our good. You see, God's tough rebuke is the making of us. Alan Ross says, God's discipline is designed to make us like Jesus. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Twelve months later, she experienced the incredible birth of her son, laughter at 90. Isaac. And because of Abraham's startled, nervous laughter, and because of her silent, disbelieving laughter, they named him Laughter. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Not a chance. Those who are under the new covenant blood of Jesus possess the joyous realities that are very parallel to Abraham and Sarah. First, like Abraham, we see that the Lord's table that we will partake of today has great similarities to Abraham's participation in a covenant meal. As such, we are in deep spiritual connection to Jesus as we partake of the Lord's Supper each and every week, friends. John 6, 53 and 56 say, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Does that sound familiar to you? Every week when we pray the prayer before we receive communion, Lord, may we abide in him and he in us, right? The somewhat barbaric and metaphorical language that Jesus speaks of is the deepest spiritual exchange. Jesus is the meal. As partakers of communion, a covenant meal, we are in deepest intimacy with him. And when we are changed by his grace and walk in his ways... We sit at this abundant feast table with the finest bread and the finest wine. That's why he called the church in Laodicea to repent in chapter 3 of Revelation. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. When we are changed by his grace, repentance and faith coming together, we have a perpetual meal before him, perpetual intimacy with him, believing that nothing is impossible for God. There was no way Sarah could give birth apart from God's power, which was precisely the situation that would encounter her great, 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 great to the nth degree granddaughter, Mary, who was a virgin who would have the power of the Most High come upon her. Sarah, beyond her childbearing years, would bear Isaac. And Mary, never having known a man sexually, will have a Savior, Jesus. Because nothing is too hard for the Lord. 
And likewise, as we heard in today's gospel reading, the impossibility of rebirth takes place through God's power in each and every one of our lives as we're born again, just like Jesus described in Nicodemus. Jesus answered in chapter 3, verse 5, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You see, we think of miracles as the great healing miracles, and although those are, and we believe God continues to heal today, I would suggest the healing and rebirth of a life is a greater miracle. Because nothing is too hard for God. And Jesus says in John 6, 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, we've just celebrated the ascension, where he's ascended to the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father as our mediator and advocate at the present time. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We say that every week. Do we believe it? That's what the ascension's all about. The fact that he's ascended, oh, he's coming again, dear friends. And do our lives reflect that belief? Or do we internally kind of laugh? Yeah, you're right, that's, that's not going to happen. Oh, it is. He's raised from the dead. He's risen. And he's ascended. It seems silly, it seems ridiculous, but nothing is ridiculous for those who are in covenant relationship with the Lord. Because nothing is too difficult for him. And God calls us to respond with faith, not doubt, because he always keeps his word to us. And truth be told that if we who call ourselves Christians fully believed in what he said he, he would do, our lives would look much different probably than they do today. Amen? We do not need greater things to believe. His promises to us right now in the word are too wonderful. We simply need to respond to what he's given to us with repentance and faith because God's grace changes everything. Because nothing is too hard for God. He can renew your birth right now in Jesus Christ. He can give you a seat at the feast table right now. He can raise you up spiritually right now. And he will raise you physically forever one day. If you have true belief. It's the miracle of a changed life. I'd say that's greater than any healing physically that anyone could possibly have. A life who exhibited that was Lee Buck. He passed away a few years ago. Lee was a highly successful Anglican businessman. He worked for New York Life, had the biggest New York Life office in the country in New York City. He was driven, determined, ruthless. And then one day at St. Paul's Darien Church, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he was one heck of a salesman, so what do you think that made him in the kingdom? One heck of an evangelist. You see, you don't need a collar to be an evangelist. And Lee got that. And he was the most gifted evangelist that I ever heard. And everywhere he went, he went across the nation in the Episcopal Church back in the day, preaching the word. And every time that man proclaimed the word, hundreds and thousands of people would come to faith. They estimated that a quarter of a million people came to faith through Lee Buck. An ordinary businessman who met Jesus Christ. 
Because Sarah is listed in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith. She's a hero. Doesn't look like it in our passage, does it? See, the passage seems to be making another point. The lives of the heroes do not necessarily bear witness to their greatness or even the greatness of their faith. Oh, we have great examples of faith in the scriptures. We do. They're towering personalities who played key roles. But for the most part, that's why I've loved walking through Genesis. Abraham and Sarah are just like us. Ordinary people who in their feeble and erring ways are ordinary people. And by simply and ultimately believing in the promises of the true and living God, lay claim and aligning their lives according to these promises, as best as they knew how, were graciously caught up in the story of God, much bigger than they ever dreamed or ever imagined. The story of God's redemption in the world as told through Abraham and Sarah. History, as they say, is his story. God's story. That's why in Hebrews chapter 12, which is in sense an application of Hebrews 11, the writer begins to tell us, if, if we're going to live like Abraham and Sarah, we fix our eyes in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We don't fix our eyes on Abraham and Sarah. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And how do we do that? By fixing our eyes on the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature in Jesus Christ through the scriptures. He's the only one who perfectly demonstrates what true faith is. And his is the only faith according to which we may ultimately pattern our own. And as we fix our eyes on him and live our lives of faith in our own ever erring and feeble ways, like Abraham and Sarah, we with our own little faith stories, also graciously get caught up in God's larger story in our day. And I suppose that we can every now and again fancy ourselves with the thought that if the Bible were written today, perhaps even you and I might get a mention. On this Sunday after the Ascension, this Mother's Day, let us fix our eyes on Jesus who descended from the mother of all mothers, Sarah, whose grace changes everything because she was restored and bore laughter. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this day and grateful for your love for us and grateful for Sarah's humanity because each and every one of us at times have laughed at your promises. Lord, Remind us that nothing is too hard for you. And that no matter how long it takes, if even a lifetime, may we rest and fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And may we be, you be born in us today anew and afresh because of your love for us on the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.